about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. If you are new among us, it's great to have you here. I hope this morning uh, is encouraging. I hope you experience the warmth of Christ's love in this community. And I hope you um, understand and kind of see Jesus this morning as we look into the Word of God, uh, that we might see uh, Jesus and hear from God and respond. Um, This passage kind of might seem a little strange, like a little, little quirk of kind of early church history, of kind of just Paul and the shenanigans of kind of early church life. It's kind of, you might be reading it and going... Okay, so there's some stuff that happens, a bit about circumcision maybe, or kind of just some tension, that kind of some, some little kind of uh, chinwag to resolve all that. What, what gets my attention in the passage this morning is Paul, who is this, this battle-hardened missionary. Like, he's a guy in his Christian life who, who gets shipwrecked, who gets flogged nearly to death, who is stoned to nearly to death, who is constantly uh, ostracized by the Jewish and secular community for his faith. And yet he keeps in faithfulness, keeps pressing forward, all with this joy of Christ about him. That guy, who shows no fear apparently, is deeply concerned, even fearful. And he stops what he's doing in Antioch out of fear and concern and heads down to Jerusalem to address his concerns. What is Paul worried about? What is he so worked up about? What is he worried that he will be running his race in vain? He's worried about freedom. Do you remember this movie? This movie's like 25 years old now. Does anyone know what it is? Do I have to explain the analogy? (laughs) It's a classic. I I kind of grew up with this movie. Um, I was over fifth. No, maybe I wasn't. Anyway. um, It is a great movie about, um, I can't remember his name, but fighting for, we'll call him Mel Gibson. (laughs) William Wallace. William Wallace. Fighting for freedom. And in this passage, we see Paul fighting for freedom. He doesn't have kind of a Scottish army behind him, but he is worked up. He's Mel Gibson, worked up about freedom. And as Paul recounts uh, this story of his own testimony, of his life and how he went back to Jerusalem to sort this out, he's doing that that the Galatian church might realize just how important this is. We're cutting right to the heart of the gospel and he's so worked up about it because he fears the Galatians have lost the centrality the beauty, the richness and the truth of the gospel with all its implications, freedom in Christ being so critical. Now, it's not lost on me that when people think about Christianity in 2018, freedom is not one of the first things that's going to come to mind. And so I think it's good for us to recognize that, to look at what this freedom in Christ is and how it might differ to the modern idea of freedom. But what we have the joy and privilege of doing this morning is going right to the heart of the gospel. As is our habit in this church, we open up a text of scriptures and we we work through it. And we're asking God to kind of speak to us clearly. And we're asking that he might help us respond to him. And it's my privilege this morning to work through Galatians 2. And we're going to unpack it in three ways. We're going to look at the gospel. We're going to look at freedom. And we're going to look at unity. Gospel, freedom and unity. Now, where are we in the story? If this is your first week, uh, we're kind of a couple of weeks into this series on Galatians. You might like, what's Galatians? It's a, it's a small letter that Paul wrote to the churches around Galatia, modern-day Turkey. 
And he starts his letter really upset, as I've already said, he's upset that they've lost the gospel, that they've added it slightly, added slightly to it, but in the process have actually lost the centrality and the truth of the gospel. Now, Peter, as we read, we might remember from Acts, which we did only uh, a few weeks ago, uh, in the middle of Acts, Peter, this kind of great apostle and kind of leader in Jerusalem, he'd had the great vision that God had actually sent out the gospel, not just to Jews, but to the Gentiles, and he's on board with that. So the Jewish people are kind of like, hey, so God's including the Gentiles in this great plan. But what keeps happening in in Jerusalem particularly is the Jews keep going back to, we've still got to obey the Ten Commandments. You've still got to do circumcision. If you want to be saved, okay, we're on board with Jesus, okay, he's cool, he's with us now, but you've still got to do all this extra stuff. They haven't really unpacked what the implications are of being saved in Christ alone. They keep wanting to add to it, and it makes sense. We want to add to it so that we can see that we're good, that we're okay, that we can tick ourselves off, that we might even tick other people off. Okay, you're good, you're part of my community, you're doing the good things, I can see that, well done. It's so easy to do that. But Paul will not have a bar of it. He fights for the centrality of the gospel, that we are saved in Christ alone, and he fights for the freedom that comes from that truth. Um, You might also recall, as we looked at Acts, that in the middle of Acts, Acts 15, there's this big uh, council of Jerusalem where Paul fights for this particular issue. Now, I reckon this, what we're reading today, is with Paul recounting a story before that council of Jerusalem. This is a constant issue. The Council of Jerusalem actually locks down this issue, actually ratifies it, if you like. But he doesn't make reference to that council in this, and that would be an obvious thing to do if this happened after. Instead, he's going back to his first conversation with Peter about this issue, and it's obvious that this issue pervades the early church. So what we get to see is Paul go back to grassroots, back to fundamentals, and we get to see how he explores it and helps people understand the issues at play which brings us straight to the gospel. So in verse 6, oh sorry, yeah, so in verse 6, he he rocks up into Jerusalem uh, where these kind of esteemed leaders are and he's not fearful of them. You see see how um, Paul writes here, um, as for those who seem to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. Paul does not go into Jerusalem fearful about those other people. He knows that he's saved in Christ, he's secure in Christ, he's not worried about worldly judgment and status. No, he just goes in there and has a conversation. In fact, he presents the gospel. He lays out the gospel. That's the first thing he does. He lays out the gospel. Back in verse 2, let's look with me. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel, set before them, laid out. He doesn't go in guns blazing about the issues on the, on the superficial. No, instead, he starts from the fundamentals. He lays out the gospel before them, that they might discuss the gospel. Now, he doesn't explain what he's done there. He's just said the gospel, like that shorthand for like, okay, we know what Paul did there. I asked my scripture class this week, what's the gospel? I got all kinds of interesting answers, uh, including gospel music. Uh, no, Paul did not do a gospel song uh, Instead, he preached the gospel. And if we want to understand just really simply what the gospel is about, I want to ask you to flick back with me to 1 Corinthians 15. That's only a couple of uh, books previously. So 2 Corinthians is the book before Galatians. 1 Corinthians 15. And I want to... um, We don't often kind of flick through the the Bible. uh, Normally, it's played up on the screen. But I want you to have this before you uh, on your device or uh, in front of you with the text. And read with me from verse 2. 
Uh, verse 1, chapter 15, verse 1. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached. So here we are, he's, he's prepping us. He wants to remind us of the gospel, just the simplicity of the gospel, uh, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you believe in vain. So he's prefacing it with the same concern. Hold to this, otherwise everything's in vain. Verse 3, for what I received, I passed on to you as first importance, fundamental, that Christ died for your sins. Point one, according to the scriptures, it didn't happen out of the blue, it was part of the whole story of God, that he was buried, that's important, he died, he really was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And as radical as that sounds, he says, uh, and that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, including Paul. Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised again, and he was seen by a multitude, that this really did happen. That is the gospel. When I'm meeting with people, I love hearing what they think about Jesus. I haven't, I'm not in the habit of kind of drawing six boxes and kind of working through two ways to live, although that was hugely influential in just my understanding of the gospel. But when I'm meeting with people, I always want to start with, what do they think of Jesus? Have they heard about him? Most cases, yes, but they don't know much about him. Maybe he's a good teacher. I then ask the question, you kind of know part of the story that he died. What do you think that's about? It's confronting that he died. Some say, well, it's just, you know, I guess he was martyred as a revolutionary. But what's that about? Why did he die? How do the Christians understand the implications of his death? Paul says the gospel, he died for our sins. And at that point, we're not just learning about Jesus, we're learning about us. There's something about us that Jesus had to die for our sins. We're not okay. And we're not okay with God until Jesus has died for our sins. Not just kind of being naughty. My scripture classes, I was working through sin uh, with them, with you three to four. I sort of asked them, what do you think sin is? And I got kind of like, being naughty. <laughs> I said, well, if, if it's just about being naughty, do you think, what do you think God's like? And you kind of get this picture of this kind of auditor or police officer sitting on the clouds with his thunderbolt. It's not the picture I get of God from the Bible. Instead, I get the picture of a father whose heart is broken when his children not just disobey him, but abandon him. Like the prodigal son say, actually, God, I wish you were dead. Father, I wish you were dead, that I might have your blessings and live life according to my own ways. And God is rightly, not just upset by that, but offended by that. That is sin, that relational breakdown and every implication of that breakdown that we're not okay, we're not okay before God. And Paul says at the very beginning, every time he keeps laboring this fundamental fact that Jesus died for our sins. But he didn't just stay dead, he rose from the dead as death has been swallowed up in victory, as Paul will say later on in 1 Corinthians 15. This is good news. It is good news because whatever is going on in your life, whatever you think of yourself, however you're measuring yourself, Jesus died for your sins and he rose again as your Lord and Saviour. That is what Paul lays out before the Galatians. 
He doesn't go in attacking kind of, you know, I've heard you doing this, that's not cool. He says, let's begin, let's lay out the gospel, let's talk about that. And then we'll talk about how everything flows from that. It's kind of, it's a beautiful example of how to do dialogue. As firm and as frustrated as Paul is, he begins by laying it out, opening a dialogue, and he shows how gospel freedom flows from the gospel. See, the issue that brings Paul down from Antioch down to Jerusalem is the issue of freedom, as I've said. But particularly, it's the issue of circumcision. And that's kind of weird, don't you think? It's a bit awkward that Paul would kind of get so worked up about circumcision. I mean, most people might not even know what circumcision is is anymore. Um, I didn't explain that to my scripture class. Um, (laughs) So what's going on here? What is Paul so frustrated about? We can see from verse 3, if we go back to Galatians 2. If we go back to Galatians 2, uh, I went in response to Revelation, set before them the gospel that I preached among you as the Gentiles, uh, but I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear I was running my race in vain, yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. They were saying, if you want to be saved, you want to be part of God's community, you've got to show that. You've got to demonstrate that in obedience and in circumcision and the rituals that we've known for millennia. And Paul's saying, no. These false believers who are saying such things are spying on our freedom in Christ. They're spying on the freedom we have and saying to you falsely that you need to do other things to be saved. And Paul said that totally undermines that Jesus has died for your sins and that you are saved in that. If he's died for your sins and you've still got to do other things to be saved, then what's the point of his death? as though it was just the first step towards reconciliation. No, you are completely forgiven. Do you know the freedom that comes from that? That you are completely forgiven before God in Jesus' death, He's dying for your sins and rising to new life. When I think of freedom, I think of you know, the first day I got my peas. Uh, and, I, and oh man, drove my mum's Mazda 121, uh, very manly vehicle. I was okay with that because I was free. I was no longer had my stressful dad sitting next to me. Uh, I put it in first gear, then quickly second, third, fourth, boom, down the street. I felt free. It was beautiful. About six months later, I crashed, but that's okay. <laughs> I think of going to Fiji. I think just, you know, just one of the, one of the greatest holidays I've had since having children <laughs> because I knew that we would take off from Sydney and we'd go on this epic adventure and on the other side was a kids' program and beaches. <laughs> I felt free. But I don't really know, to be honest, in this life, what it means to be truly liberated. If you spoke to a refugee who fled to Australia out of fear for their life and asked them, what does freedom look like? They will tell you what it means to be liberated. Friends, you have been liberated from under the righteous judgment of God. It is good that God is righteous and cares deeply about justice and the ways of this world. That is good. When something goes wrong in this world, I want God to care about that. But I'm going to fall under that same curse because I'm broken and our heart keeps wandering away from God. And yet, I am free because Christ died for me. And that spiritual freedom, that good news of the gospel, flows out into every aspect of my life. I was just thinking how this kind of plays out for me, like 
emotional freedom came to mind. You know, in the theater of my mind at night. You might, you might kind of be familiar with this. You go to bed at night and kind of, you want to go to sleep, but kind of the theater of your mind flicks on and just, just kind of reminds you of some of the stupid things you've done that day. Maybe even more than stupid, maybe kind of just really crappy things that you've done that day. And you get that pinch of guilt and you kind of bury it down in a bit of shame. I hate the theater of my mind. And even as a Christian, for as long as I've known, I'm still kind of reminded and these, these kind of pangs of guilt and shame appear in my mind. But then I'm reminded of that sweet restoration, liberation of Jesus. That whatever pangs of guilt and shame appear in the theater of my mind, I know that I am forgiven. And I tell you what, not only do I sleep better at night knowing that I'm forgiven, but it's out of the fact that I am free and have been liberated and are not insecure and are not buried in guilt and shame that I might even, and I'm propelled even, to go and make good of the things that my conscience has reminded me of. I don't need to bury that down and hide it. I can actually bring it before God and say, I know you've forgiven me for that. Would you help me kind of make amends? Would you empower me to actually display the love you've shown me to whoever I've wronged? And that's where I sleep at night, in the restoration of relationships, in the freedom of my conscience, knowing that I am forgiven and that I'm not driven by guilt. It brings about cultural freedom. The gospel brings about cultural freedom in the same way that the kind of gospel crosses divides of culture across this world. Do you know how many Christians are now, uh, people are believers in Africa? 400 million in China, 67 million. In South America, it's going nuts. It used to be this kind of, you know, this European thing, perhaps. But the gospel keeps traveling across divides, breaking down barriers, because it's not about externalities. It's not about, have you kept the rituals? It's about, have you trusted Jesus? Are you forgiven by Jesus? I met a Muslim a while ago, we're just sort of dialoguing about Christian faith and I laid out the gospel before them, I presented it to them, that they might kind of interact with it, you know, wrestle with it and after some good conversation they just say to me, Mike, it's just really fuzzy. I was like, that's an interesting word, fuzzy. But what they meant by that is in Islam, it's quite clearly laid out what you should do according to the will of Allah and so they can neatly kind of work through that as hard as it might be and kind of tick themselves off and try and gain some assurance, try and know they're on the right track of the will of Allah. And when they look at Christianity and its endless implications of loving God and loving neighbor, they're like, how how do you do that? (laughs) It's very hard to love God and love neighbor, but our assurance, our joy comes from the simplicity of the gospel that we are forgiven, not because of what we've done, what rituals we've completed or who we are or what our story is, but because of what he has done because of who Jesus is. I met a woman at the door of a church a while back in Western Sydney, and I was on welcoming that morning, and I'm just doing my joyful Christian thing of like, hi, welcome to church, blah, blah, blah. Um, Hope you feel welcome this morning. Uh, And this lady, kind of middle-aged, tattooed all up and down her arms and legs and uh, dyed hair, and she's looking a bit nervous, and I've not seen her before, and so I, I say to her, welcome to church, is this your first time here? And I sort of get a very tense, like, yes, and I could realize that coming through the doors of our church was a big thing. And I always thank welcomers for actually just making the bold step of coming through the doors of a church, whatever their story is. And I just said to her off the cuff, I said, nice sleeves, referring to her tats. And she 
almost cried. She's just like this kind of, all this tenseness in her just exhaled through her body. And she just said, thank you. And I said, thank you for what? She said, I've been looking for God and I was very nervous about coming to church that I might be judged for who I am and what I've done. (laughs) And just by thanking her for coming and saying nice sleeves, I broke down these kind of cultural barriers like as though though you couldn't have a tattoo and come to church. (laughs) How ridiculous. But I tried to welcome her into the freedom of Christ. And she stayed at church for quite a while. Now, before I join sides with the libertarians, it hasn't escaped me that freedom is a really big deal in the secular narrative. And I'm banging on about the freedom we have in Christ, knowing that kind of freedom's not what comes to mind for people when they think of Christianity. So I've just been thinking about kind of what does freedom really mean? And uh, this could be a very long sermon, but let's kind of cut to the chase a little bit. Freedom is ultimately a good thing. It's really simply most and easily defined by its negative slavery. And even though kind of I might not agree with the full libertarian kind of agenda, I can see why freedom is a good thing. Of course, human flourishing has nothing to do with slavery. But modern freedom has detached itself from any deeper foundation. It's a free-floating concept. Like, it's a good thing to pursue, yes, but there's nothing deeper than that. We just want to be free, free to be me, no strings attached. And there's a paradox in that kind of freedom. Now, Plato was the first one to introduce us to this idea of the paradox of freedom. And he was thinking at a very social level where he spoke uh, in... um, uh, I've forgotten where he wrote this, but he he spoke about uh, when there's no restraints in society... What happens is that the the strong bully the weak and undermines kind of the freedom of society, that freedom paradox. But thinking more in in a 2018 sense, this guy Clive Hamilton, who is a um, a professor of uh, public ethics in Australia, he writes this book, uh, and it's it's quite an interesting book, and I won't go into the details, but what he picks up in the modern freedom paradox is that we're all living out our John Stuart Mill authored freedom. He's the guy that kind of wrote on liberty and kind of set up our uh, egalitarian, utilitarian kind of society of today. We're all living that out, pursuing our happiness and trying to find meaning and accruing wealth and experience in our freedom, in our autonomy. There's lots of good things in that. But Clive says, in that process, we have not found deeper meaning. In the freedoms we've been promised and pursued, We have not found a deeper meaning. Instead, we've used those freedoms to skim across the surface. We've actually, in the freedom we have, just satisfied our mere pleasures and wondering why we're not cutting to the heart of what it means to be human, to flourish. And we're seeing some of the fruit of just that kind of skimming across the surface. With all the freedoms we have today, we're seeing a rise in anxiety and depression and angst and disappointment and heartache. We've not solved that problem. At the heart of this church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus and living out His freedom. We're not chasing freedom as a goal in and of itself. Instead, we're finding freedom when we live for Christ, who made us, who saved us, and is at work in us by His Spirit. And in the freedom of knowing that we are His, no matter what our story is. We get to explore this new life together. Paul writes elsewhere in Colossians 
That it's like we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the sun. And I find that language so helpful because even though I've messed up and don't deserve this kingdom of the sun to be brought into the family of God as it were, Christ has brought me into that, that I might rediscover who I am and my place in his world. And I can do that in the freedom of knowing that I'm forgiven and that I'm part of his family. And even as I keep messing up, I start each day afresh in his mercies, in his grace. Let's go back to Paul. He didn't just fight for freedom. He fought for the gospel and every implication of it, including freedom. And as he did so, he did so humbly, laying out the gospel. They might interact with it, discuss it, dialogue. And the result was unity. He didn't just fight about differences. He didn't just go in and say, circumcision, what the heck are you doing? Stop doing that, you're messing everything up. He didn't bicker about those superficialities. No, he went to the heart of the issue, our heart, the gospel. And as he did so, verse 6 They added nothing to my message. See, the gospel rallied people, unified people. We agree with this and we're now understanding the implications of it. Verse 7, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. There are different people, different contexts to minister in. And it's beautiful that that God gathers up a diverse number of people, diverse members of his body to reach a diverse world, but he does so with the unity of the gospel. And the result, those esteemed as pillars, these great people, gave Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. We are in this together. Friends, let us continue to seek unity in the gospel reminding ourselves, preaching to ourselves, laying out the good news that salvation is found in Jesus alone. Then you'll be free from every other demand and claim upon you. And then for Paul, circumcision is a total non-issue. Let me just say a little quirk from Acts, you know, just after they ratify all of this, to say that circumcision is nothing and you're saved by Jesus alone and the council meets in Jerusalem and it's a big deal and several years after kind of Paul's story here as he continues to fight the same issue, everyone's like, finally, we agree on this, we're writing it down, we're having a council, we're all with authority, agree on this, that you are saved by grace alone and that you are not saved by circumcision. After Paul labours that and fights that case, in the next chapter, he has Timothy circumcised. (laughs) Why? Because circumcision is nothing. It's a ritual. It's a cultural thing. Paul finds the freedom to do it, knowing that they have ratified the truth of the gospel, that you're not saved by that. And because of that, feel free to do it or not do it. Luther puts it well, although it's a little bit old language, but I kind of like that. It kind of just just unsettles us a little bit. He writes this in his commentary on Galatians, the great reformer Martin Luther. Now, as concerning faith, we ought to be invincible and more hard if it might be, than the adamant stone. But as touching charity, caring for people, social issues, we ought to be soft and more flexible than the reed or leaf that is shaken with the wind and ready to yield to everything. In the case of circumcision, Paul says, it's nothing. But if you think you're saved by being circumcised, then you will find me as firm as a rock. How might we be a people without cult boundaries, but absolute, resolute, on the gospel, 
and loving people, whoever, they, whoever we come across. But there's one thing I don't want to miss at the end of this chapter. It's a little thing. It's like, it's like as this kind of, they all kind of agree and have fellowship, the people that Peter, Paul is meeting with reminds Peter, well, reminds Paul, verse 10, look with me. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very eager, the very thing I was eager to do. The gospel has character. There is a, a way we live out the gospel. Why? Because it's not just a bunch of truth propositions, although you can itemize that out as he did in 1 Corinthians 15. The gospel is ultimately a person, Jesus. And when you look at his life, Jesus absolutely taught with authority, taught about the kingdom of God, called people to faith and repentance. And yet he wasn't just about truth or kind of saving souls. He wasn't just about that. The way he went about it, he imaged the Father. He revealed the Father in the way that he did that because he was very quick to show compassion, to slow down from the busyness of his preaching schedule and to care for the poor. And if there's one thing the Jewish community wants to remind Paul before he might get too carried away with saving souls and the truth, as important as that is, as critical and foundational as that is, is do not forget the poor. Now, I've been in many churches in my time, and this has come up in all kinds of ways, uh, evangelism versus social justice. You know what the gospel answer to that is? Yes. (laughs) Yes, we need to see people come to know their Lord and Saviour. But that cannot be at the expense of caring for those around us who are in need, for our neighbours. As you think about the way you use your resources and time this week, would you continue to use your time and your money for caring for those around us? That we might image the fullness of Christ, the good news of Jesus to the world. There's much more we could say about that, but it is good for us to be reminded of that as the Jews reminded Paul. Where is this hitting you this morning? Do you think God's only interested in you if you obey and be a good Christian? Maybe you know you're saved by grace, but functionally, you're guilt-ridden, you're feeling distant, heavy-laden, and you're not feeling the liberation that we're speaking about this morning. Are you insecure in your faith? Paul wants to fight for every one of those things that are weighing you down, that you might come to know the simplicity of the good news of Jesus, that you are saved by what He has done, and that you might live out His freedom in His world with Him as Lord. As I look at my own heart, There are times that I so quickly envy the carefree, envy the freedom that our world lives out, envy the prosperity of the unbeliever with all the freedom they have to spend it. But then I'm reminded that that's pretty much the opening verses of Psalm 73. (laughs) And as Asaph, the author of Psalm 73, realizes halfway through that psalm, as he enters the temple of God, he is reminded of how great God is and what God has done. And he says, he exclaims, who have I in heaven but you? This morning, whatever direction you find your heart wandering, 
would you be reminded who in heaven and earth do you have but Christ? That you are saved in him and you are called to live out his freedom. Amen. Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.